0: check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts, podcast guests, their employers or affiliates may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Dom Kirk and today we are breaking down Ferrari. Ferrari was founded in 1929 as a race team by Italian driver Enzo Ferrari, but it wasn't until 1947 when Enzo was 50 that Ferrari sold its first car. Today, the car company is one of the most recognizable brands in the world, in large part because of its history in Formula One, where it's both the oldest and most successful team ever. To break down Ferrari, I'm joined by Brian Lum, an investment manager at Bailey Gifford. We discuss how Ferrari went from racing team to a seventy billion dollar business, the various ways it looks more like a luxury goods company than a car maker, and how its business model both nurtures and monetizes its famous red brand. There aren't many things money can't buy, but in many instances, a Ferrari is one of them. The ways in which the company from Maranello in Italy manufactures scarcity is fascinating and this conversation dives into all the aspects that make Ferrari so successful and so unique. Please enjoy this business breakdown of Ferrari. Brian, part of the fun of this discussion is that we are discussing a business that everyone is familiar with. Ferrari evokes all sorts of images and emotions, status, noise, the red color, the prancing horse, Formula One. I would love then to start with some cold facts and numbers that will hopefully surprise people and explain what the business behind the brand and those emotions actually looks like.
1: Sure. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the podcast. I'm a big fan and always learn a lot from the episodes. So to set the scene, global light vehicle production is in the order of 80 million units per year. Ferrari delivered only 13,000 cars in 2022. So in the context of the industry, Ferrari's unit volume is almost irrelevant. In comparison, Porsche is at 300,000 units a year, and a premium brand like BMW is 2 million. Price-wise, the new Ferrari starts at around a quarter of a million dollars in the US plus options and go all the way to millions for the limited edition supercars. Today, it is a company with a market cap of 17 billion US dollars, remarkably worth more than the likes of GM or Ford. And I think that just reflects how different Ferrari is to other car makers. But for us, Ferrari is simply one of the best luxury companies that we know. We were fortunate enough to be a shareholder of Ferrari for more than a decade, both indirectly through what
0: was and Chrysler and directly since the IPO in 2015. That's a great overview. And certainly a good tease for the rest of the discussion. Before we go into those details behind the numbers that you just laid out, I want to rewind to the origin story. And Luxury brands are often defined by their heritage. Ferrari is certainly no different. Enzo Ferrari will be familiar, name at least to most people. So what do we need to know about this company's history as context for the rest of the business that we'll explain today?
1: Enzo Ferrari has had a long and absolutely fascinating career. For the purpose of this podcast, I would highlight three observations. First, Enzo Ferrari is a racer. He started off his career as a racing driver, he enjoyed some success, and eventually he moved into managing teams for Alfa Romeo for a long time, and eventually his own team. Initially, making cars was the way to generate revenues from wealthy patrons to fund the racing team, so the first badge cars didn't appear until after the war in 1947. When Enzo Ferrari himself was nearly 50 years old. So racing was in his DNA. The second point would be Enzo Ferrari has an absolutely obsessive personality. He loves his cars. Perhaps I should say that he loves specifically the engine. He used to have this fantastic quote of saying, I sell engines and the car I throw in for free. But he, he loves the cars, the, the engine, to the extent that he was often criticized for caring more about. Speed. His cars, then the race drivers, during an era where fatalities in motorsport were commonplace. He had no hobbies outside of cars. He has never taken a holiday, as far as I know, rarely even leaves Modena or Marinello. And he worked right to the end, shortly after the launch of the iconic F40 supercar. The whole purpose of his career is about the pursuit of perfection, and that
0: single-mindedness to achieve what he did is astonishing. Would it be fair to say that he was quite a challenging character as well?
1: I think so. I think that it comes on to the third point, actually. And so Ferrari intuitively understood human psychology. He was a genius marketer. There were anecdotes of him making clients wait for months for a Ferrari, even when there was plenty of inventory, just to maintain desire. On the other side, he was not an engineer by background, like Henry Royce or Rolls Royce, like Ferdinand Porsche or even Ferruccio Lamborghini. But I love this description of himself as the agitator of men. (laughs) Very much surrounding himself with the best engineers and designers and then inspiring them and
0: really make things happen. You mentioned his obsession and how... Ferrari and cars were his everything. I noticed the other day that his house is actually in the middle of the racetrack at Fiorano where Ferrari is based. I mean, you literally can't get any closer to your business than being in the middle of the racetrack that you've built to test the cars that you're producing.
1: That's right. That obsession we see with a lot of successful founders Me just when you say that, it reminds me of Elon Musk living in the factory to get his company up and running. Anyone who wants to to see Enzo Ferrari would have to go and visit him. He never even boarded a a plane or an elevator for that matter. He's very much moderner, Maranello. That's his life. That's where he built his empire.
0: We tend to leave the competitive advantages of businesses till later in these discussions, but I think that's really the heart of the episode. Based on the history that you just outlined, I think we've touched on a few of the pieces because when we talked prior to our recording, you mentioned that Ferrari success in your mind comes down to three things. It's brand, heritage, manufacturing ability, and its client relationships, all of which you just touched on with Enzo's founding story. I would love to explore those three in much more detail as it relates to the business today. And then we can work into the financials of how that translates into dollars and cents. Starting with the brand, how have they been able to preserve Enzo's origins and the last 75 years of racing heritage? into what clients can buy today?
1: So the brand heritage took decades to build up. It is very much about history and storytelling. Formula One is a big part of it, of course. It's one of the few truly global sports franchises. And Ferrari remains the most successful, the most glamorous and the only ever-present team on the grid. But I think the brand comes more from just numbers, there are legendary rivalries on the racetrack. Think about Niki Laude and James Hansen in in Formula One in the 70s. Think about Ford versus Ferrari in Le Mans in the 60s. Both of these were immortalized by Hollywood in recent years. Incidentally, a biopic about Enzo Ferrari is coming imminently. So there's a lot of cultural relevance there. I would say that thinking of luxury brands that we know, one of the Metrics that you often talk about in this series is the ratio of people who are aware of a brand versus the number of actual clients. I struggle to think of another brand that can really compete with Ferrari in this regard. I still remember my daughter coming back from nursery when she was two or three singing Big Red Bus. Not going to entertain your listeners with my rendition, but it does feature Ferrari in the lyrics. I haven't heard them sing about Hermes or Pater Philippe yet. Perhaps Rolex can compete on the brand awareness side, but it is a company that makes a million watches a year, not 13,000 cars as a Ferrari does. It is really, truly one of the special brands that we know. And I'll say that when it comes to heritage, there's a product side as well you have this amazing back catalogue of iconic Ferraris from which Ferrari themselves and collectors draw inspiration. The lineage of mid-engine sports cars went back 50 years. Front-engine V12 cars went back a long way as well. And then you have all these supercars the GTO F40s to Enso itself they were on the teenage bedroom walls of many Ferrarisities today. So you've got some powerful product franchises. And Ferrari, to me, does a particularly good job at managing this heritage. There's this incredible department, Ferrari Classic, in the middle of the Maranello headquarters, where they have this paper archive of all the Ferraris ever made. I think about all the prices, vintage Ferraris from the 50s and 60s and 70s. You've got the original design the paper sitting in being the folders so that, if need be, they can restore this heritage authentically. So for me, talking about history and heritage, this is really what I think of.
0: Is that all predicated on racing success? If you think about the brand, Enzo started it to be able to fund a racing team. And today we still have the Ferrari Formula One team, as you bet, it's the only Formula One team that's been in the championship ever since it was started. Which leads me on to a question about how close... Should we be thinking about the Formula One team Ferrari and the car company Ferrari as one and the same thing, or should we be separating them in some ways? I had to I
1: had the fortune to visit Maranello a few times as part of my job uh, to understand how the company works. And one thing is very clear: the motorsport side of the business and the road car side of the business, while they are different businesses and involve different people, they are integrated. The Formula One team comes back to the headquarters situated on the same site. Everybody really breathes the successes and sometimes the failures of the Formula One team. And if you could walk into a dealership, you do have posters and TVs very much charting success of the Formula One team over the year. So it is an, an intrinsic part of the brand identity. And ultimately, nobody needs a Ferrari. Ferrari is a luxury product. It helps. What Ferrari does is to allow its privileged customers to dream a little bit. you imagine imagining yourself driving down the road using the paddle gear shifts. Imagine you are Schumacher or imagine you are someone else. It allows you to live that fantasy a little bit. And Formula One is or motorsport in general, is a great way to do that.
0: Right, and thinking that essentially their whole marketing budget is spent on the Formula One team. They don't really do traditional advertising or marketing in ways that other companies might think about it. They see the Formula One team as their marketing spend.
1: It's a big part of that. They do not split out the profitability of the racing team. For what it's worth, they do get paid by Formula One and they're also sponsorship and so on. So revenues come from the non-car side is around 10%. I would see that as their marketing spend.
0: And obviously to win races, which is an important part of this business, it's predicated on building great machinery, engines, cars, etc. What stands out relative to other either car companies or luxury good companies about how they've managed to build manufacturing prowess?
1: We talked about obsession of Enzo Ferrari earlier. And I would say that obsession is an essential ingredient for true luxury. And we see that on the manufacturing side in abundance. I still remember this image of looking at how a V12 engine was painstakingly hand-built by a master technician. And uh, I remember talking to an engineer years ago about the turbocharged V8 engine and the extreme length that they went to to make sure that the acoustics and the throttle response are as perfect as can be. Let's talk through how the layout of the manifold the spacing between the pipes, the layout, to make sure that harmonies come up correctly. We were talking about music instruments. These things really stuck with me, and the obsession is very clear. And I would say that the manufacturing line at Marinello, it is an artisanal process. You do not see huge robots everywhere. The production line is naturally lit. There are trees inside the factory. It is labor-intensive and level of Automation is pretty low and it's not the most scalable. But I bring this out because this layout gives them incredible flexibility to make design choices that optimizes the car rather than the manufacturing process. This is quite distinct from most car companies. On a product portfolio level, I'm of course an outsider, but I do understand that the executive team and the board really are agonized over the question, what makes a Ferrari when it comes to approving new products? a great example would be the industry's trend towards SUVs, even amongst brands known for making fast cars. SUVs are now more than 50% of the outputs. If you look at Porsche, Lamborghini, and Aston Martin, for example, Ferrari has resisted for years. They eventually launched the Pura Sangue, which was more practical than existing Ferraris. It's very much a sports car and paired with a naturally aspirated V12 engine. So that's a good example of how obsessive they are around the design, the engineering, and product range as well.
0: For people who might not be familiar, and I count myself in this, when you say the V12, they're putting in effectively what we would call an SUV, and I'm sure they would be shocked at me calling their car an SUV. But why is that an interesting design choice or manufacturing choice?
1: The V12 engine is very smooth, it's not the most economical maybe, but it is a masterpiece in terms of the construction and the sporting heritage. The choice to put in a B twelve is a clear statement that, hey, this is a sports car. If you look at many of the expensive luxury SUVs on the market, they tend to have a V eight turbocharged engine. And often these engines will be shared by with many other models. So for example, Take portion of Lamborghini. You would find the V8 engines shared across the Volkswagen group. It would be a very similar engine inside the Audi. So I think with the Pura they made a clear statement. This is a real Ferrari. It drives drives like a Ferrari. It sounds like a Ferrari. I didn't mention that the V12 makes a very distinctive sound. Depending on how many cylinders you have in the engine, the interaction of those give a distinct harmony. That's very much a signature and it helps define what the Pura Sangue is. And even after all that, they have the discipline, incredible restraint to say, right, we'll limit the outputs of the Pura Sangue to less than 20% of overall Ferrari outputs. So yeah, it's a great example of the length that they go through to think through these things. And to me, unique amongst the high-end car makers.
0: Can we just hover over that point for a few seconds longer? Because every car company, and even up to brands like Ferrari, Lamborghini, etc., have been building these SUV bigger cars that where demand has just been insatiable. And Porsche, I think, at this point, basically is their SUVs. I think the Macan and the Cayenne basically pay for everything else in that business. And Lamborghini, I think, are selling fifty percent of their cars are their Euros SUV. And so when you say there's restraint, I think that might be an underselling, the strategic decision to say, we could sell probably 90% of these things in terms of our product range, but we're not going to because that's not what we stand for.
1: That's correct. I suppose that perhaps to the next point around how they manage exclusivity, they have to be very good at saying no to people. It's an interesting job. They are saying no all the time to clients who are not used to rejection or being made to wait. These are high net worth individuals and the reason is very simple. Ferrari has to maintain that exclusivity The most sought after Ferraris should be allocated to the best collectors. I think because of the demand of Perisangue, actually Perisangue would would be allocated very carefully to the selected customers and this is a very interesting dynamic.
0: I'm always fascinated by how this relationship works. I was listening to a luxury watchmaker The CEO of that business talking about this scarcity issue and how they're very careful about who owns their products. How, in practical terms, does Ferrari choose who buys their cars?
1: There is a very clear hierarchy of clients. So at the base, you would have newer Ferrari customers who would buy the first Ferrari maybe. As you build your profile, and this is something that's very carefully monitored by Ferrari, you would have different pathways to become what they call a collector. And within that, there are a few tiers. So at the top, you would have the most serious, loyal collectors with fleets of Ferraris. And they would be the clients who would be offered the limited editions. To give an example, one of the cars currently in production is called the SP3 Daytona, which is a model that celebrates a racing success in the 1960s at Daytona. It's limited to 599 per unit. It's more than 2 million. Before the car is even announced, they were already allocated to all the best clients. It is a very interesting dynamic, and it's part of the the journey as a Ferrari collector. You work your way up if you have that desire to. Sometimes it can be a source of friction. There were instances in the past where some collectors even tried to sue Ferrari for not giving them the privilege to spend 3 million on the car. It is a crazy world,
0: really. Yeah, you're turning down millions of dollars. Really care about responsible ownership
1: and engagement with the community. And I think it's that word again, obsession, extends towards how they manage relationships with their best clients.
0: Do they have a direct relationship with those clients? Because as I understand it, their distribution goes through a network of approved dealers rather than them selling directly. Is it that they manage the approved dealers very closely and then those approved dealers are expected to look after the clients? Or in some cases, do they have a direct relationship with their end client?
1: They do have close relationships with dealers. But effectively, the Ferrari management would know the top, I don't know, five, six, seven hundred clients very well. When it comes to limited editions, it's very much Ferrari that controls that monitoring. And if you don't have a profile with them, there's really no chance. That's it. You get hold of the limited edition cars.
0: And when you talked about you earn the right to own the more exclusive Ferraris, maybe let's flesh out the product portfolio and how they have built their lineup to be able to work your way up a scale.
1: The word entry level feels wrong for Ferrari. <laughs> but I think they call it the range models. So the core would be 296 GTP, which is a hybrid. It's the mid-engine supercar. And there are, for those who prioritize comfort a bit more than speed, there are, there are models like the Roma. So these are, for want of a better term, these are your core parts of the portfolio. And then the next step up would be limited editions. So these typically would be based on their range models, but with certain customization. Beyond that, you would have even more exclusive cars like a Kona series that I mentioned earlier. A few hundred cars, you can talk about millions per car. And so beyond cars that you can see on the road, there are also track-only specials. They, they do run racing competitions for their best clients. A good example would be model numbers that end of XX to highlight how extreme these cars are. Many of these are not even allowed to be driven on the road. And then you have things like supercars that may be launched once every few years. The Enzo is a good example. I mentioned Enzo because uh, for me growing up, that's the halo car. But before that, you've got the F40s and F50s and, and GTOs and so on. So you've got multiple levels. Most of these we will never see on the road. I think beyond that, they do have for the very best clients and also racing-minded clients, it is possible to get access to a Formula One car. They've got this spectacular facility next to the Fiorano circuits where you see all the past race cars. On very special occasions, clients can experience the thrill of a a true Formula 1 car. And uh, This is something that's clearly very hard for many competitors to replicate.
0: The client experience, you don't often talk about that with cars other than the process of buying a car. But when you buy a car from Ferrari, particularly past the range model, once you become a collector of these Ferraris and you've proven your relationship to the company, can you flesh out a bit more what the client experience looks like at that end of the spectrum and why people will become repeat customers? I think there's some really interesting stats about how many new Ferrari cars are sold to existing Ferrari owners and how that might be different to some other businesses.
1: Yes. So two-thirds of new cars delivered last year went to existing Ferrari clients. And more than half of those clients actually have multiple Ferraris. These are really spectacular numbers to illustrate the loyalty there. Now, why do clients become collectors? Well, first of all, Ferrari makes brilliance in collectible cars. We talked about product heritage and lineage earlier, the mid-engine V8s, front-engine V12s, you have convertible sports cars and so on. Collectors... Often end up owning cars from different generations of these product lineages. Perhaps it's a bit like the big film franchises. New James Bond come out or Star Wars come out, and so you go and see that. It's almost a similar dynamic. The other elements would be that collectors may want different Ferraris depending on the occasion. The perfect Ferrari for a weekend away is not the same as one that you'd use for a trap day. Ferrari calls it different Ferrari for different moments. Now, most people's direct experience of Ferrari would be hatching sight of 1 on the public roads. But for collectors, things like road trips, race events, meetups can be an important part of the ownership experience. For example, last year, Ferrari organized an event where I think about 70 or 80 Monza SP1 and sp 2s So these are highly limited supercars at $2 million plus each. A road trip for these owners to drive around Italy as a celebration, so that these events really add to the experience, and it also contributes to your profile with Ferrari. And last but not least, I think clearly most Ferraris are not driven very much. There's a lot of enjoyment happening not on the road, but uh, either on a private track and simply in the garage as a piece of art to admire.
0: Yeah, the parallels to other luxury goods, whether it's art, watches handbags. Mm-hmm. There are many of them. And it reminds me of a question that I wanted to ask in terms of vertical integration in the manufacturing facilities. You often see a lot of these luxury goods we want to keep control over the end-to-end process of making these things because they're artisans, or they're, they know their craft, they're obsessed with it. How vertically integrated is Ferrari? Do they buy parts from other places very much or at all?
1: Ferrari is an interesting one. They do have a network of trusted suppliers who they rely on to produce brakes and tires and so on. A lot of the facilities are based in one place, Maranello. It's about assembly, so engine assembly happens on site. A lot of the interior, the stitching of the interior happens on site. Plus, they do rely on their suppliers for not just the components, but also innovation. And they have got a fantastic network for that.
0: So I guess one pushback to what we've just been talking about is that the three components that you've laid out in terms of what makes this business really special, it feels like I could say similar things about other high-end car manufacturers. If you think about Lamborghini or any of the other quote-unquote competitors to this business, why would you say that Ferrari is different with respect to these three areas? I think
1: some of the peers would be able to claim the same with one or two of the three factors that I mentioned. I struggle to think of a direct peer that can do all three things in combination as well. Thinking through the competitors, you do have niche makers, Bugattis and Koenigsegg and Bugatti and so on. They make exotic supercars with extreme performance, but they wouldn't have the heritage or the client base to compete directly with Ferrari. Then you have companies like Porsche, the high echelons of the 911 franchise would be quite comparable to Ferrari. But overall, the philosophy of the company is very different. I have a lot of admiration for Porsche and it has struck this quite astounding balance between volume and market positioning. It is not Ferrari. We talked about watches slightly earlier. To me, Porsche is a bit like a Rolex. It is a mass manufactured product, incredibly well made and to achieve this volume and price premium, that's almost unfathomable but Ferrari is more like a Panic Philippe. It's at the pinnacle. Then you have companies like Lamborghini, which has a similar positioning to Ferrari in many ways. It doesn't quite have that same racing heritage, and it's also part of a bigger group, which means a lower scope for truly uncompromising design. I suppose you can put in two British brands in there, Aston Martin and McLaren. Aston Martin is an interesting one we know well, and actually run by Ferrari's ex CEO. And so under Lawrence Stroll's leadership for the past few years, they have made progress and they have behaved more like a luxury brand. It does have a degree of heritage. But the breadth of and depth of the client base and the product portfolio would take a long time to build up. I think you'd say that McLaren also faced some of the similar challenges electrification is a wild card. Perhaps it's something that we can come on
0: to later. Yeah, we will definitely get there. It feels very much like you're joining a club when you buy a Ferrari rather than necessarily buying a car. And the club just happens to be one of the most exclusive clubs on the planet. We've gotten probably half an hour into this discussion. We haven't really talked about the financials, which I'm sure will agitate a few people. So let's go there now. Everything that we've talked about, how does that translate into dollars and cents if you talk us through the high-level numbers and then we can dig into them? Sure.
1: So... The revenues this year is expected to be close to 6 billion euros. Nearly 90% of that would be related to selling cars or spare parts. But the remainder coming from racing and sponsorship, but they also have a lifestyle segment. So they moved into high-end fashion in a more serious manner past year or so. They make mid to high 20s EBIT margin, which is incredible for a car company. That's why we don't think it is one business is hugely cash generative. It paid down much of the debt that it inherited from the Fiat Chrysler spinoff back in 2015. And so it returns a good chunk of its free cash flow to shareholders through buybacks and dividends.
0: If we were just to make some comparisons, particularly around the margin profile of the business, both to more traditional car companies and then other luxury goods companies, where would this business fit? Label is
1: an interesting thing. We talked a bit internally. We talk a lot about whether this is a car company or a luxury company. So car companies, if you're talking about single-digit operating margins, if you're lucky, maybe low double digits, low teens. For example, Porsche would be high teens. That's very good for a car company. Luxury goods is more in line with, for a Ferrari, you're 20% plus 30% plus rating margin. So Ferrari is very much in that club.
0: You said something provocative when we talked ahead of this discussion that this is almost a SaaS-based model in terms of the way that they earn revenue. Can you explain that thinking and why you might compare it to what we generally think of as a technology business model?
1: I made that comment, partly trying to understand the revenue drivers for, for this business. We talked about the top collectors earlier. And to become a top collector, you do need to build that profile. And the SaaS comparison is very much a reference to, hey, you need a regular record of buying multiple Ferraris to be considered a top, top collector. It's not quite a subscription stream, but there's an element of a regularity that goes beyond a single discrete big purchase. That point around VIPs, to me, is fascinating. We talked about the SP3 day Daytona earlier. It's limited to $599, 2000000 million plus. Think of Ferrari's in revenue of $5.9 billion this year. On its own, it is quite significant. And that's without considering the purchase record it takes to get there. One way to think about the financial is not just to think, okay, 13,000 cars multiplied by the average price per unit, how can we flex those numbers? What I'm trying to do is try to understand the underlying driver. What is the unit economics? So approach it almost from an angle of, okay, the lifetime value of a collector looks something like this. How is Ferrari building that business? That hierarchy of clients, you've got this pyramid. Are they expanding the base of the pyramid or are they stretching the pyramid to ever higher and higher heights? And so I think these are different mental models for us to think about Ferrari in different ways to try to take into account many fascinating dynamics that we have touched on earlier.
0: I would love for you to answer that question for me about whether they're expanding the base or stretching the pyramid. I'm presuming they're doing both, but maybe we can just unline exactly how and what that means.
1: Ferrari does disclose some statistics on the size of the client base. So over the past five years, they have expanded their client base meaningfully. I would say that a positive signal for me in the past couple of years is the launch of the 296 GTB and, and GTS, which is a hybrid model with a V6. It's a hybrid model with a V6 engine. This is the start of a new product lineage. Effectively replaces the V8 mid-engine supercars. My understanding is that the 296 really brought in a lot of interest from a lot of new Ferrari clients. So thinking through that lifetime value is the beginning of a lot of new cohorts. You may not be able to get one just now, but it is a model that signals the start of something new. From what I can tell, the 296 appeals to the existing Ferrari clients as well, as well as building, attracting, the next generation of Ferraris, if you will. That's expanding the base of the pyramid. And there are stats like, I think, 40% of the new clients would be under 40. So there are various snippets to suggest that Ferraris aren't just bought by 60 and 70-year-old petrolheads. They are bringing in a new generation of Ferrari fans. And for me, that's a very positive signal. Thinking through that pyramid is they are expanding the base. The collectors are... The number of Ferraris in the collector's garage are going up and so they are coming up with new pathways for Ferrari fans who are just starting the journey to move up. So these are all the dynamics that we traditionally think of where we analyze SaaS business models or subscription based business models. And what are the cross sell opportunities? What are they? How you would improve the ASP? How do you improve client retention and? I'm just really borrowing frameworks from analyzing different businesses to try to understand what's going on
0: here. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. The one thing that they have working against them, as do most luxury businesses, is that they can't just keep growing volumes because at some point, that will reduce their exclusivity and start tarnishing the brand. There are other levers that they can pull in order to make the business more profitable in terms of margin profile. How do they operate this scarcity versus increasing profitability?
1: First of all, I'd say that I would be somewhat concerned if unit volume accelerates. So, that thirteen thousand going up slightly every year—that's perfectly fine. But the opportunity here is very much increasing the lifetime value of collectors, bringing new collectors. How how you square that with a volume growth that's more pedestrian would be, first of all, customization. A typical Ferrari would the options would be underneath. Fifty or sixty or seventy thousand US dollars. I'm just guessing here, but it, for me, it's quite interesting that the top level of customization called tailor made was only launched, I think, just over ten years ago. There are huge opportunities for Ferrari to push that further. Ferrari is come with new ways to engage the community all the time, so that part of it, I'm quite optimistic about. And this one is,
0: should it be? I think I remember seeing in the summer that they had to revise their profit guidance up earlier this year, based on the number of personalizations that they were doing. And obviously, they're very beneficial to the bottom line of this business. The one I think that stands out a little bit is they have this fashion segment, which is a very small piece of the business at the moment, but they look like they're really trying to push it and grow it. What is this? And why are they doing it?
1: I don't really have a huge amount of insights on this part of the business myself. I would say that over the past few years, they have taken the non-car part much more seriously. There are license agreements where a partner can come in and license a Ferrari brand and put it on products where that hasn't gone through Ferrari's own internal processes. They've really taken that control in-house much more in the past few years. And fashion is, is an area that's they are taking very seriously. Now, I can't say whether how I've gauged the probability of success, but the fact that they are experimenting is great and they seem to be doing it in a thoughtful way and very much leveraging the existing brand equity. So we'll see what happens there.
0: Is it just another way of expanding the bottom of that pyramid? A 25-year-old might be able to buy a jacket from Ferrari because they, and they've been a Ferrari fan for their whole life, but they won't be able to buy a Ferrari until they're probably early 40s, for example. And so just another way to get people into the brand early and then hopefully if they strike gold, they're then able to join the club in a more traditional sense.
1: That's right. I think related to that, I talked about 296 earlier, bringing in new clients. It's the same with the Perisangue, potentially it's the same with Roma. They talk about offering different Ferraris for different Ferrarisities. I think it's the same concept. They need to be very clear about what Ferrari stands for. But within those confines, they are pushing at a full trust in the company to on how they manage exclusivity in the brand. But that's a very important part of the investment case.
0: The other piece of the numbers is the cost profile. Is there anything interesting in there? Maybe it's that they spend more on R&D than other businesses or they spend less on marketing. Is there anything that stands out that says that's part of the Ferrari DNA?
1: Optimizing and manufacturing efficiency isn't really a <laughs> priority here. If you look at the line between gross margin and operating margin, gross margin is at mid-40s percent. More than half of that would be on R&D. Now, Ferrari doesn't have a big parent where they can leverage research. In some ways, that's to be expected. There are bigger car makers like Mercedes that do make high-end cars, that do make race cars. Obviously, they can draw on the t- technology that so the investments that Mercedes make across a much bigger bigger base of units. So direct comparisons on the cost base would be difficult.
0: Yeah, the Mercedes is a really good example, I think, because they obviously have a Formula One business. They make high-end cars plus more mid-range cars as well their Formula 1 business is very separate to the rest of the company, both in location and I think in ideology. The Formula 1 business, we've touched on a bit. How meaningful is the team to the financial profile of the company? The the investment case for
1: Ferrari is very much, for me, based on the car business. Formula 1 is, I think, as I said earlier, is the the non-car business is, is about 10%. I don't really expect that to be much bigger. Obviously, they would love to have more success on track in Formula One. And There are useful R&D value in, in running motorsports, especially on the powertrain and when it comes to having people move sometimes between the racing operation and the car design. It's useful know how to share sometimes. That's the most important part of that is to get the Ferrari brand out there. That's the true value of motorsports in my mind. But I say motorsport rather than Formula One because they have re-entered Le Mans in the past year. And won it. Yeah, they won it. So creating new stories rather than you know, always talk about the 60s and 70s and so on. It is a very important part of the company's brand building and DNA. When you talk to Ferrari employees, racing is always top of the mind and that's completely authentic. And I would also say that Ferrari is the national team, Italy when it comes to motorsports. You just have to go to the Italian Grand Prix and realize the passion of the fan base. So it's almost in parallel. Ferrari is in the middle of this cluster of motorsports companies and high-end car companies. The racing DNA is, of course, heavily contributed by Ferrari, but it's that region that it does have that racing heritage that goes beyond just Ferrari.
0: We talked a lot about selling new Ferraris. One interesting piece that kind of extends across the luxury landscape is the secondary market. How closely do they watch that and or care about it?
1: I can't really speak for themselves, but it's very clear that the pre-owned markets for Ferraris is in a much stronger position than many of the other high-end sports car companies in terms of value retention. It's an interesting stats. So last time I checked, the top 30 most expensive cars ever sold in auction, Ferrari truly dominates. I think you're talking about 20 out of the top 30 with some Jaguars and Aston Martins and Mercedes making up the rest. And the reason that's the case would be when you buy a Ferrari, there's an implicit commitment from the company to support the maintenance of these cars. So when a car gets to twenty years, it's officially a vintage. You can certify it again. You get into the official Ferrari program. They would say that Ferrari is for life. You do not scrap a Ferrari. So, thinking about most cars, they depreciate for seven, eight, nine, 10 years, and if they're, they're scrapped, Ferrari, that's not the case. So, value retention. Of course, they depreciate in so the first few years of their life, but they hit a certain point and is stabilised. And for the limited editions, quite often they appreciate. I'm sure this is something that Ferrari themselves monitor, but I don't have the insight to tell you exactly what they do with it, other than to say that pre-owned Ferrari Ferraris tend to retain their value much better than most obvious peers.
0: I guess if you really look after who's buying these cars and you know their history with the business and you're not afraid that they're going to flip the car in a week's time once you bought it, then that will surely help supply in the secondary market or limiting it anyway. One of the biggest threats it seems like from the outside to a business like this is the electrification of the car industry and general sort of climate concerns about internal combustion engines and the car industry itself. I want to start with a very broad question of how do you view electrification with regards to Ferrari's future?
1: We've held the Ferrari directly and indirectly for over a decade, the stocking and portfolio. The implication of electrification is the most highly debated topic. We are big believers in EVs. We believe the future is electric, and we have crossed that tipping point. It's clear that we need to decarbonize transportation. Ferraris are not about transportation. They would say to themselves, and then we completely agree, that Ferrari should not be considered a mode of transportation. And the, the implication is that Turning Ferraris completely electric wouldn't make sense from an environmental standpoint. Think about an EV. An EV takes more energy to make up front, but you get that payback over years through the use phase. For Ferraris, they get driven 2,000 miles a year, so you can make a full battery Ferrari and you may not get that payback. So for us, it makes sense for Ferraris to focus on hybrid in the short term and Interestingly, in the last quarter, looking at their outputs, hybrids, i.e. the 296, is over 50% off-shipment. In the future, they are already committed to launch a battery Ferrari in 2025. Now, social license is very important, and they are working very hard in general to reduce the emissions of scope 1 and scope 2. So in making the, the car itself, so they are leaving it up to the clients to say, hey, if you want a V12 engine, we do that. We've got a hybrid Ferrari that offers amazing performance, and they are doing electrification for performance reasons. They have always been very clear on that. And they're also investing in battery technology and developing a battery for Ferrari that's in keeping with the character. We have every confidence that Ferrari could keep that obsessiveness and develop true Ferraris regardless of powertrain. But of course, it is a, a moving part. I will say one more thing. In thinking through the mega trends of the automotive industry, electrification is one part of it, but also autonomous driving is another. And who knows where ownership of automotive will go. And the trend is that cars are becoming more about utility. And Ferrari is about the opposite. Those two directions point in different ways. On the one side, we might worry about disruption. Is Ferrari going to be less relevant in the future? But the other scenario would be that when you have a product category that becomes more and more about utility, it opens up the space for creativity. It opens up the space for ever more high-end products. And we've seen that with watches in that they have gone through multiple disruptions. Think about the quartz crisis in the 70s. The watch industry has been making intricate mechanical movements for hundreds of years. And then Seiko came along and said, hey, here's a battery-powered movement. And that's much better than the mechanical one in terms of precision, just objectively speaking. It's much cheaper. You can tell the time much better. At the time, it, it, the watch industry go through a crisis. You were saying earlier, you were listening to a podcast on a luxury brand. And, and guess what? All the top luxury brands in watches make mechanical movements. They make moon faces. They make tourbillons. They make minute repeaters. All of these are completely useless. But that's, in some ways, what luxury is about. They go over the top. And the value is in the complexity itself rather than the function. And I think this is the direction that the car industry could be going. And that's, I think, where Ferrari's prospect can be very bright in that you almost completely get rid of constraint of making something that's practical and everyday. You can really let loose on human creativity. You talked about Porsche a bit earlier. Evans often called the everyday supercar. Ferrari's not an everyday they don't want to be. I think that's quite an interesting parallel.
0: That's a fascinating idea that actually as the car industry moves to electrification, maybe Ferrari stands out even more than they have done to this point. The analogy to the quartz crisis is going to be a really interesting one to watch because those businesses got sucked into making quartz watches. And then they ended up saying, no, what we're about is these mechanical ones. That's what people want to buy us for, despite them not being able to tell the time as precisely as these battery-operated watches. Do you see that as a short-term risk here with Ferrari? They've said they're going to build an electric car. They're already building hybrid cars. Is that potentially a risk in the short term that they get pulled along by the mega trend and then in 10 years' time they say, oh, we've lost what made us Ferrari in the first place?
1: they're producing hybrid Ferraris and they are developing pure electric Ferrari for the right reasons. It is about performance and enjoyment. They'll be very clear on that. So take, take the hybrid because you've got this electric motor, it makes acceleration even better. Even with the EV version of a Ferrari in 2025, one common concern would be that, hey, you're losing that V12 sound or V8 sound has been such an important part of supercars. But they've also been very clear that look, battery electric Ferrari will still have a sound signature and they're investing a lot in that. We've only got so many sensors to work with. They will not give up on sound as part of the experience. Driving pleasure is not Just about sound. It's not just about straight line acceleration. It's about braking. It's about balance. It's about lateral acceleration, and all of those things are expertise that Ferrari has developed over many decades. And I must say, when Tesla first came along, and you see all these YouTube videos of Teslas going faster than all your traditional supercars, the question is: Hey, where does this leave the traditional supercar companies? Ultimately, for a company like Ferrari, because they don't need to make practical cars, they would end up making design choices that are very different to EVs that are designed with everyday use in mind. So there's scope for them to differentiate. And this is something that I'm probably now a bit more comfortable with than, let's say, five years ago, when it's clear that so the EV tipping point is coming our way.
0: And if we think about the management team, clearly they have an interesting balance to strike here with this business based on everything that we've talked about. Is there a story there that we should know in terms of who runs the business now? Obviously Enzo was part of it for a really long time. Who now oversees the operation? What does the board look like? What from the management team is interesting.
1: So the CEO is Benedetto Vigne. He has been in the post since 2021. He was a physicist by training. He was a prolific inventor with, I think, hundreds of patents under his name, as well as an accomplished executive at STMicro, which is a leading semiconductor company, before joining Ferrari. This may seem like a surprising background for a Ferrari CEO, but there's, of course, strong automotive and luxury expertise amongst the top team to complement the CEO's tech background. The board is fantastically diverse, you'd never guess the company makes cars just by looking at the board. So lots of luxury experience, carrying LVMH and so on. There's an Apple executive, which perhaps ties in with the importance of tech and client relationships and services and so on. There is a lead shareholder here in Ferrari, Exxon, which is the holding company of the Agnelli family. So Gianni Agnelli's grandson, John Elkan, is the chairman of the board. He's someone that we have interacted with and uh, we have a lot of respect for. The second biggest shareholder would be Piero Ferrari, who's Enzo Ferrari's son. I think like many luxury businesses, the long-term perspective offered by these anchor
0: shareholders really matters. If we think about the future in terms of your most bullish picture that you could paint us, what does that look like? Because It doesn't seem like there's going to be a huge inflection point here. The process of managing a luxury brand like Ferrari is steady, constant improvement. You're growing volumes marginally, if at all, but you're trying to get margin improvements over time. What would the most bullish picture you paint us be?
1: It is very much about the longevity of the opportunity. With all luxury companies, if they grow too fast and make us nervous, I would use that pyramid that we've talked about earlier as the framework for understanding the long-term bullish scenario, adding a new generation of Ferraris at the base, they might take time to get through. But we know some very promising signs there. And at the top, we suspect there's plenty of room for that to grow, for that pyramid to get ever taller. That would be the direction that I would investigate. It's interesting that for almost all of us, 300,000, 400,000 sounds like a lot for a car. When your mass market car is more like 30,000. But you're thinking through the fast wealth of those right at the top, your classic Ferrari customers, the ratio of their wealth versus someone average would be much more than 10 or 20 times. Going back to the watch analogy, Patek Philippe starts at five figures, but can go easily up to six figures. What's the ratio of that relative to a average watch? It's way more than 10 times. So I think at the top, there's plenty of room to stretch further. And as long as the company manages that brand and carefully with the long-term in mind, it is always very hard to evaluate companies with that longevity. We talked very similarly about Hermes when my colleague Mark Kirkett came on the show, and it's a similar sort of dynamic. For us, it's all about the culture and how carefully they manage that brand and cultivate the very small group of collectors. It is about the lifetime value, if you will. I don't know what the value of the top 1,000 clients is, but I suspect that's a very big number.
0: (laughs) It's got plenty of zeros. One of the things that I should have asked earlier in the discussion was just the markets in which they sell into. Often we talk about brands like this, and Asia has become an important place where they sell into. One way of maintaining scarcity is by selling into a market where there traditionally hasn't been many of your products. So when you go out on the streets, you don't see as many Ferraris, but they are actually selling more Ferraris. They just happen to be in a different place in the world. Is that dynamic similar here?
1: Yes, it is a very global distribution ready. It's interesting you brought up that point. For years, they limited themselves to 7,000 cars under Luca Montezemolo. They very much said 7,000 cars is the limit. We want to be exclusive. It is somewhat arbitrary number, but if Part of the rationale for increasing that and still be able to have that exclusivity is because they are new sources of wealth around the world. And it's not like you see multiple Ferraris on in your average city with certain exceptions. I think part of managing that exclusivity also comes from collectors, the best collectors having more Ferraris so you're not seeing a flood of Ferraris on the road because your best collectors can only drive one at a time and most of the time, actually, they're driving some of the cars for their transportation purposes. That's an interesting dynamic and it's something that I would watch as the Ferrari portfolio becomes more electrified. It's very important to keep that sense of vacation When you see or drive a Ferrari, the electric Ferrari experience should be no different in that regard, and that's something that they'll have to manage.
0: It's going to be amazing to see what that electric Ferrari looks like, sounds like, feels like, will be an interested observer. Brian, this has been a really, really interesting discussion about one of the most interesting brands in the world, I would argue. We always finish these discussions with the same question. And that's what have you learned from your time with and studying Ferrari that you could share for fellow investors as well as operators?
1: First of all, I think that's a phenomenal question, and actually, that's incorporating that into our investment framework when it comes to reviewing companies. I would point to two things. We've talked a lot during this podcast about whether this is a car company and a luxury company. So, for me, the broad point there would be that as human beings, we like to categorize things, put things into boxes, and in the context of the financial industry, that makes sense. Talked about mental models and mental shortcuts. So I guess the first lesson that I learned is if you have to categorize things, make sure you get it right. <laughs> and I think better still for investment research, we should really discard these labels and really think from first principles instead. This lesson really applies very broadly. I'm very used to artificial binary divides and markets are emerging markets or developed markets growth or value, a company's small cap or large cap, these are all boxes that we'll put things into. When it comes to critical investment thinking, we should go beyond that. And Ferrari is a particularly good example to remind us, you know, don't be lazy and rely on labels for our investment insight. The second lesson would be thinking through Ferrari's edge. Well, It's a company with one of the strongest competitive edge that I know But if you ask me to articulate it, and I think I I have struggled in this episode to truly articulate it well, I can't point to something that Ferrari does that anyone else can. It's not like an ASML where they are the only company that can make an EUV machine. It's not like an AI company or leading internet businesses where they clearly benefit from network effects, two-sided or three-sided. Here, the edge is more combinatorial. It's a bunch of little things that they do extremely well and are completely with about that in combination makes them unique. I think that's an important lesson. And sometimes, certainly when I do investment research, we sometimes try to figure out investment competitive edge in isolation. What is it that they can do that no one else can? But quite often, the answers can be more nuanced. And I think that combinatorial point is one that we can apply
0: quite broadly. Super set of lessons, it's very difficult to attack a moat that you can't put your finger on, which is probably a good thing to have as well.
1: It's very easy to juggle one ball. But when it comes to three or four or five, it gets exponentially harder. And we've certainly observed with other luxury companies that can do one or two, but struggle with three It's exactly the same dynamic. And I think that's what makes Ferrari special. Having that ability and discipline to act like a luxury company maintain that obsession and have a clear set of DNA that backs up the brand.
0: And even harder to do it for decades and decades. This business is past 75 years old now, which is extraordinary. Thank you so much for breaking Ferrari down with us. Thank you so
1: much. This has been fun.
0: To find more episodes of Breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out JoinColossus.com. That's dot com.